Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even within a few days, it became quite apparent that if we were going to make this target, it had to be all about that. There could be no concessions to a holiday or enjoying it or having a cultural experience or or it being the ride of a lifetime, it was entirely focused on making this a hard record. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, and this episode with Laura Massey-Pugh. Alongside her husband, Stevie, Laura holds the world record for riding a tandem bicycle around the world. It's pretty niche, but very impressive. In this episode, we talk through the tandem ride and how it all played out. But we ask the obvious question, why ride a tandem bike? We get into Laura's background and passion for cycling, and her early beginnings as a bike commuter, and how you go from simply riding your bike to school and work, to travelling around the world on a tandem. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Laura Massey-Pugh. So, thanks very much for doing this. I think um, a logical place to start is the start. If you would be happy to introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm, I'm Laura Massey-Pugh and I'm the back half of Stella Tandem, which is a record-breaking ride that we did around the world um, in 2022 with my front half, who's my husband, Stevie. So yeah, that's, that's Stella Tandem in a nutshell. <laughs> It's a nice transition from other half into front and back half. <laughs> yeah, I often sign my signature, um, email signatures as that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only time I've ever heard that mentioned is pantomime horses in other worlds. <laughs> few similarities, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm sure we'll get on to how we end up as a front and back half of a tandem, but what's your background? Where are you from? Have you always been a cyclist? Yeah, so... Um, I have always been a cyclist to some extent, but very much a commuting cyclist. I was I was never a sporty cyclist. So um, I grew up in Reading um, and I was I was the odd bod there that cycled to and from school. Um, that continued when I went to university in Edinburgh, um, cycling kind of through all weathers to get to my uni courses and then kind of continued. And I'm, I'm now living in Derby in the Midlands, but I'd 
I was always on the bike as a mode of transport, but as never sporty cyclist, the idea of donning lycra absolutely terrified me. Um, and then in 2015, I met Stevie um, at a beer festival, all, all things. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, yeah, it, we got on very well. And he was very quick to talk about some of his, his cycling endeavours and mention that he had a tandem bicycle. And so it didn't take long once we got together that we got out and about on the bike um, and started kind of riding further and further distances. And he convinced me that, yeah, I needed some sportier clothing and a sportier bike. Um, and he was he was a very proficient ultra distance, long distance cyclist. So he kind of gave me the bug um, into taking things further. He may well now regret that because it's obviously spiraled out of all proportion. Um, but yeah, I have always been a cyclist, but it was through him that kind of enabled me to start pushing the distances and um, kind of become a lot more proficient, at, at, you know, all those bits and bobs. So what was it about cycling? And obviously you've mentioned it was a mode of transport and a, and a kind of commuting vehicle essentially, but it must have gripped you in some way to see you do it for so long through all weathers. Yeah. And yeah, I very much did have the, and I think that's what feeds into doing the longer distance stuff. I just think it's amazing how far you can travel on a bike and how far you you can propel yourself with, with your own energy and the freedom it gives you. So even before I met Stevie, I'd, I'd done my own a hundred mile ride, which um, I thought was, it was amazing at the time and couldn't believe that I'd traveled that far on a bike. And it was, it was an old hybrid. We went down canal paths, you know, I didn't have clipping shoes. Um, it was, it was a complete fudge job, but I was, I was just absolutely over the moon when I did it. And yeah, I think through schooling, it's just that freedom it gave you. It meant I wasn't trapped in a bus or having to get lifts, you know, I could go on my bike and I could go whichever way I wanted and go where I wanted and park up where I wanted. And yeah, it was, it's the freedom it gives you. I think that was always the big appeal. And one thing I, this is a question I've definitely never asked on this podcast before is, brilliant or similar is, why does Stevie own a tandem bike? <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he had tandem bikes. Um, so his he used to ride them with his previous wife. Um, and yeah, they did some fairly amazing rides um, all through like the Alps in France and things like that and had a, had a brilliant time. Um, sadly, their relationship broke down and we're still in contact. But, you know, she's, she's an amazing lady. But it then meant that he'd got a backseat going spare when I met him. So um, I, I think he was more than a little pleased that um, he found somebody else that would, would tolerate him and, and sit in the back seat. But his, his first wife was a lot more sensible than I was and, <laughs> and a lot more about the recreation of it. So, yeah, um, yeah, it, and it's, yeah, it's not every, every man you meet that's got a, a tanned bicycle in his back shed. So it was a stroke of luck, I suppose, that it kind of gave us that opportunity to kind of get on the tandem from the get-go as opposed to have to like talk about it. Do we invest one? Do we buy one? Would we like it? Would we not? Um, he'd got a lot of that background already and he'd got a lot of the skills of handling the bicycle already and knew what to expect and how to ride it. Yeah, I think, you know, disclaimer, I'm not much of a cyclist at all and I've never been on a tandem bike. But what is the appeal of tandem cycling? I genuinely don't understand it in a way why not just ride next to each other um firstly it's a brilliant leveler um so stevie's a much faster cyclist than i am so if we ride together either he has to match his pace to mine so he's he's therefore going going slower 
on a tandem, we can both put in the same effort and move at the same speed. We stay together and it's it's quite hard to lose the other person on the back of the tandem, or I think it has been done. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it makes it easier to kind of communicate because um, you're closer together in that sense. You, it's, a, it's a lot kind of more teamwork, as it were, because um, you are kind of, you know, both directly kind of riding the same bike. You've got to be very responsive and kind of work together. Um, and yeah, they're just, they're lovely things. Um, they make people smile. So if you're riding through towns, villages and people see a tandem, you often get a point, a wave, or you just get a knowing grin from a driver in a car. And I think there's something about that nature of knowing that two people can work together on, on the same bike is, it's a bit of a novelty, but um, it takes a lot of skill as well. So yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a few kind of aspects to it. Yeah, it's funny timing because I've got some friends who are just about to go on a short. You know, they're going from, I think, Dover to London, um, tandem cycling journey. Short. <laughs> <laughs> Shorter than round the world. Yeah, well, I already <laughs> um, it. And they've never ridden a bike before, or a tandem bike before, and they've just got on it for the first time and they've realised how hard it is. I and mean, I think maybe that's some of the myths we can dispel now because I'm happy to admit my own prejudice. You know, when I historically have thought of a tandem bike, I've just thought of this like novelty jokey village greeny wouldn't this be funny if we had a go but to actually take it seriously is something else I think completely yeah I'd agree with that um but as well I I think they are so if, if you speak to people and obviously we've got a lot of connections through the tandem club things like that, a lot of people that might like loan out hire out tandem bikes and things like that they they'll often say that um it's going to go one way or the other if the couple gets on a tandem. They'll either come back beaming and want to go out and buy their first bike and do it for more, or they'll come out absolutely fallen out, not talking to each other. That's it, we're done. And I think it's a very strong dynamic there. And, you know, there's, there's tandems out there that are called the divorcer, for example. It's, there's a saying, go, whichever way your relationship's going, it'll go there faster on a tandem. But it is, it's that shared you know, that shared responsibility to kind of put the effort in and get from A to B. And I think it's um, it's an interesting concept, even pairs riding as solo riders. If you look at the ultra distance events, um, things like the TCR, the Pan Celtic, things like that, it's still the solos that win that. It's never the pairs. So there, there's obviously no real advantage to riding with another person it must be more challenging and it's because of that interaction and yes you can support each other but it's how you work together that I think is the, the true challenge yeah I completely get what you're saying I've done a lot of running in pairs and you <clears throat> I'm either slowing down or speeding up depending on who I'm running with and it's great to have the chat and to be a team but it is a completely different dynamic to sharing a mode of transport I suppose yeah that's interesting so I I guess we should maybe talk about the segue rather than just going straight into the around the world. You know, how do you go from, take me on the journey from meeting Stevie and getting onto the back of a tandem for the first time to however many years later suddenly deciding that this is probably a good idea? Yeah, <laughs> so I'll try and um, narrow it down a little bit. But um, So essentially once he got me on the tandem and we, we were still riding solo bikes as well at that point, but yeah, it was obviously a leveller because he was such a strong cyclist, hopefully. I've caught up a little bit, but I will never be as fast as him. Um, 
<clears throat> and one of his passions is um, the club called Audax, um, which is a UK-based, well, it's, it's international, but there's a UK-based branch of this club, um, which is the like the long-distance cycling club, as it were. So their rides start at 200 kilometres and kind of go up from there. Um, so he told me about the, these rides that are mostly done by kind of middle-aged bearded men and you pay like f- a fiver to enter, you get given a paper route sheet, you ride 200 kilometres or more, possibly through the night, sleep on the floor in village halls and arrive at the end bedraggled and exhausted to probably a cup of tea and a biscuit, no more. And it sounded horrendous, but something about this kind of caught my imagination. You know, it almost felt like a bit of a secret club. There was none of the the pomp of sportifs or, you know, you didn't get a medal or a banner or anything like that. It was literally self-supported. It was all done of your own accord. And something about that really appealed to me. So I was quite keen to to give the Audax thing a go. But at the time, I wasn't proficient enough to ride it by myself so the tandem was a great way to start because it meant that we were together it meant that Stevie was obviously kind of keeping an eye on me and working together and we could kind of go around our own pace so the tandem enabled me to do um my first set of Audax rides um so I think that was the year after I met him and then the following year I went out and did them solo because it had given me the confidence and experience that I could then take my own bike out on them and then it kind of spiraled out of control from there in terms of trying to do the longer and longer rides. Um, so we did one what's called a, that's called a meal. So that's a thousand kilometers um, through the Pennines. That was absolutely excruciating. We did one of the ultra rides called All Points North on the tandem. Um, and it was just that we'd really got the bug for it. And it was this kind of how far can we take, can we go on a tandem? Um, we fortunately kind of got the lock, bet- um, the not the lot, the um, space in between lockdowns in the summer. And we managed to do Land's End John O'Groats on the tandem, fully laden with all the camping gear. And we did that in 10 days. So we did that quite quickly. And that's what first got the kind of cogs turning was how long. And that so that we're averaging about 100 miles a day there. So that got the cogs turning of, well, how long would that be sustainable for? How long can you ride 100 miles on a tandem for? Um, around that time as well, we saw the women that hold the Guinness World Record. So Guinness differentiates between males, you know, two males on a bike, two females on a bike, and mixed. And obviously, we're a mixed couple. So the women actually um, ha- held the fastest tandem record. They came in just before lockdown. They beat both the previous men's records um, and were the fastest tandem record holders with 263 days. And that was a really inspiring thing. I just thought it's absolutely brilliant that these women had gone out and got the fastest tandem record. And it was fantastic to see. But it did put the question in our mind of, I wonder how fast we could do it. Um, and I think we'd kind of got this 100 miles a day thing kind of bubbling along. And then we kind of talked about it a bit. Stevie didn't really say no quickly enough. Um, and then it's like, well, if we did 100 miles a day, Guinness minimum distance is 18,000 miles. That'd be 180 days. That's got quite a nice ring to it. Can we, can't we? We thought potentially we could. And that was the that was the draw was we didn't know we could, but we thought we might have an opportunity there. So, yeah, we went for it. <laughs> it just, I love these moments. The moment of, yes, I'm going to go and do that. You know, I think 
<clears throat> I don't mean this with any disrespect to anybody, but lots of people scheme and dream and that's really normal and really natural and brilliant and lots of people talk, but it's actually very rare to say, so are we going to go and cycle around the world on this thing? Yes, we are. Okay, off we go. Like, let's commit to the journey. <laughs> what was that moment? Yeah, it was interesting. And I've kind of got the, sp- the specific date where we kind of came out with the idea to anybody else. I think that was what really fixed it because we've been kind of talking about it and it was making that leap to kind of saying something and doing something. Um, and I'm not sure when it actually kind of became a reality. I don't remember a moment where we actually agreed where we we're going to do it. But um, we were having a, a barbecue um, with friends and um, we'd not long done the Lands End John O'Groats ride. And uh, obviously we've got quite a lot of cycling friends. So quite a lot of our friends realised that that was quite a fast ride. And and then there was the inevitable, well, well, what's next? And we said, oh, well, maybe we'll ride around the world. And after that, we kind of said it and then it became a reality because we'd said it out loud. And it's like, oh, well, maybe we will try and do this and kind of looking into the logistics of it and things like that. And I think there's a big push as well from having had lockdown and from our wings being clipped a bit. And it's like, well, if not now, when? You know, if we say, oh, yeah, we might do this in five years time. Well, will we? It's like, if we're going to do it, we've got to do it now because we've got the opportunity, um, we can make, can make this work. And if we put it off, I just don't think it's going to happen. So yeah, it was, it was quite something. I'm not sure I'm I'm in quite the same mindset now (laughs) as I was then, but yeah, it, um, it it did kind of develop quite quickly. So what I just, you know, trying to sort of precede it and think about it in my own head, because what state were you in at the end of Land's Enter John O'Groats in 10 days? Um, tired um and we still had to ride back to Inverness with the higher van so we still had two more days riding but then we were only doing 80 miles a day which felt like a holiday um so but we were fairly euphoric too like we got there absolutely shattered and it is similar to all these Audax rides and things like that we do there's there's no fanfare we didn't have anybody cheering us at the end we literally rode up to the sign um which were relieved us there because it was been vandalized quite recently um went and had a beer and went to bed in a scruffy caravan and and that was it but there was something about that understatedness of it it's like we've ridden the whole country and and riding land into john O'Groats is a is a really fascinating ride because you see the country change you you start off in the dense hedgerows of cornwall you move through kind of um you know, the Midlands, Wales, and see kind of all the, the agriculture change, things like that. We went through some massive bits of industry in Scotland through Glasgow city centre and then up into the highlands and just seeing the countryside, the ter- terrain, you know, how people are living their lives, how they're using the land change was a really amazing thing. And I think that kind of gave us part of the bug as well was, you know, wow, you know, we've, we've seen the whole country at the speed of a bicycle and that's a very special thing. There's very few people, even at the speed of a car, you know, would, would drive from Land's End to Grand Groats and seal that kind of past them in that time. So I think that was kind of part of the, the inspiration was that, yeah, it's, it's how far can you travel, how far can you push it and, and what can you kind of see along the way? Yeah. And uh, again, this might deviate for you from trip to trip, but I think I've interviewed and spoken to quite a few people who've done round the world some things, you know, and 
often obviously it's cycle rides and you get certain people like Mark Beaumont, Leo Wilcox, who are looking to do it as fast as they possibly can. It feels like 99% of this is an athletic challenge, physical endurance. And then you've got Alistair Humphreys, who just said, well, I'm just going to go and cycle around the world and I'll see you someday. And four years later, with no plan, he rocked up home. Um, those are very, very different experiences. They're almost incomparable. There's only one constant. Where is it for you? So... Quite quickly, it became about the record um, and about the speed. So, yes, by no means were we anywhere close to Mark Beaumont's speeds, but um, <clears throat> it very much did become all focused on that 180 days. And I, I would say we became a bit obsessed with the number, to be fair, to the point where we wouldn't let ourselves slip a day. We would have still got a mixed record having done 250 days but we wanted to make this a hard record and all due respect to the, the the guys and girls in tandem that had done it before, but they would often kind of take a day off to maybe see some sights and, and experience, you know, a little, a tiny fraction of the culture. We took no time to do that whatsoever. So, you know, we wouldn't even stop somewhere nice for lunch. We wouldn't, you know, stay in a, a nicer hotel. We We literally, everything we did was to make our ride faster and to try and meet our target and within a few days in Stevie was fairly livid going oh I thought you know we'd, we'd have a little bit of a holiday we'd have a little bit of a chance to relax but with even within a few days it became quite apparent that if we were going to make this target it had to be all about that there could be no concessions to a holiday or enjoying it or having a cultural experience or or it being the ride of a lifetime, it was entirely focused on making this a hard record, a hard record to beat, and doing our best performance as well, because to have done it in that middle ground, we would have, I don't think we'd have felt right, we'd have almost ended up regretting, like, would we, should we have stopped there, you know, could we have gone faster? As it is, we've come back with absolutely no question in our mind. We gave it our best and we could not have gone any faster under those circumstances. So, yeah, we, um, we're happy with our performance and we've kind of, kind of got no regrets about not seeing more along the way because that was the intention of the ride. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get it. I think this is the point, isn't it? It's unique to the individuals. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just whatever experience you want to have. Um, so maybe we should just go for story time now. I think it would just be nice to to ask, you know, what was the route and when did you start? What did you do? Yeah, so we started on the 5th of June 2022 and we actually started from the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. A um, few reasons for that was we didn't want to start on in the UK um, because once you start, the clock never stops. So all your travel, all your flights, a cross-channel ferry, for example, would have factored into that, that total time. So starting the continent kind of gave us a bit of a head start in terms of not having to factor that in. Um, we chose Berlin. Stevie had some family in the area, but also as a bit of a nod to Jenny Graham, the female solo world record holder. Um, both Mark Bowman and Jenny Graham have both been wonderfully generous with their advice prior to this trip, have, as have so many others. Um, and then we essentially headed south. So we headed down through Czechia, um, up and over the mountains into Austria, along the Danube to Slovakia, and then through Hungary, um, 
Romania, Bulgaria, and then down through Turkey, and then came up into Georgia. We were due to go into Azerbaijan and then cross across to the rest of the stands. Um, but at that point, the land borders were still closed. So we ended up with a few days delay there um, and flew directly to India and did a bit bit longer in India than we originally intended. Um, and then came across to the north of Thailand, came down through Thailand into Malaysia, right down to Singapore. We then through, flew to Perth in Australia. We did the south coast of Australia in the Nullarbor Desert, right through to Brisbane. Um, flew into Dunedin in South Island, New Zealand, and then came up through both islands to Auckland. Went across to Vancouver in Canada, across the whole of Canada to Halifax. Flew back to Lisbon in Portugal, came up through Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, back to Germany and back to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin for the 1st of December last year. Amazing. In a nutshell. (laughs) So what are the rules? I think that's something I really don't know the answer to in terms of, given that this is an official world record, you don't have to follow a certain route, I'm guessing. So what are the rules? Yeah, so so you don't, which is is a lucky thing because if you if you look at um, Jenny and Graham's Jenny Graham's fastest record and Marks, for example, they they went through Russia, which obviously wouldn't have been an option for us last year. So Guinness stipulate the minimum distance of eighteen thousand miles on a bicycle. I think it's twenty four thousand miles total, including your flights. Um, the clock never stops is is one of the rules as well. You need to start and finish in the same place, which is why our kind of start point was quite important. You can only travel in the same direction, um, so you can't cross through too many lines of longitude. You can't essentially go back on yourself. And you have to go through to antipodal points as well. So for us, ours were Wellington in New Zealand and um, Alajeros, which is near Madrid in Spain. Um, And there's a few other little kind of, there's quite a few other little regulations as well, but that's the bare bones of what you need to do to qualify for a world circumnavigation on a bicycle. Okay, that makes more sense. Because sometimes, you know, I, as a lay person, you kind of look at it and go, well, you flew from here to here and you flew from there to there, so how does that work? But that, yeah. there you go, there's the rules. Yeah, and there's no solid landmass to cycle around the world. So, yeah, and we did try and kind of go as directionally as possible, um, but if, like the Middle East just became impossible. As I say, we tried to kind of go through the stands regions, but yeah, unfortunately, it just wasn't available to us at the time. And what was your, I know I'm doing a bit of the logistics stuff, but I find it fascinating all the different methods people use. So what what were you carrying? I mean, not literally, you know, let's not do a bag unpack, but <laughs> were you camping? Were you hoteling? Were there purist rules around certain things? Or is it just, you know, let's get there and eat comfortably and sleep comfortably? Yeah, it was essentially whatever was the best benefit for our recovery because the recovery every day was absolutely massive and particularly towards the back end of the trip um steve who was suffering from a fair range of kind of niggles and health issues so trying to get that recovery in every day was absolutely vital we did carry kind of a full camping setup um so we had four panniers on the bike um but unlike a cycle tourist bike where you've got four panniers on per one person that's two people four panniers and a couple of frame bags so it was pretty lean um we did have a lightweight camping setup which we did use a few times we kind of thought we'd end up using it a bit more than we did I think we had 10 nights camping in total but the times we did need that were quite crucial so for example in the Nullarbor Desert where we would either have had to ridden like another 100 miles to get a solid place to sleep 
or had to cut a day really short, it meant that we could kind of meet that middle distance by kind of putting up a tent in the middle of nowhere and we could factor that in. So it, it did kind of come into its own in quite a lot of ways. Um, but apart from that, you know, we didn't take kind of any luxury items. It was it was pretty minimal um, to try and keep the weight as, as, as low as possible. And what were the first few days like then? You know, you get on the bike and you start going. What are the emotions? What are you talking about? Um, it was interesting because I'd done quite a lot of the planning. So I got this huge kind of pressure and the stress that we just had to get to the um, to the start line. And um, <laughs> I'll say it now because um, we, 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 we didn't tell friends and family at the time, but we've just written a book about it and it's, it's in that. But I'd actually been knocked off my push by it solo bike um going to work about two weeks before and had a non-displaced fracture in my arm um so I've got all this stress of we just need to be able to get to the start line and start riding the bike so actually when we started I was like oh it was like a massive sigh of relief because I was doing what I love to do we were just riding the bike through the countryside I, you know I, I felt like I'd got it all under control I'd got it all planned and we just managed to start and that's all I wanted to do at that point I think Stevie was in a bit of a different space because he'd been less involved in the planning and it kind of all caught up on us and then suddenly we're out there riding and doing this. I think he found it a lot more stressful in the first days, like how far we're going to ride every day, how hard we push ourselves um, and, you know, kind of settling in and finding that rhythm. Um, it kind of took us kind of a few days just to kind of get that pattern to, to kind of not overthink it. I think he was thinking about the bigger picture, whereas I was focused on the day to day, and and that was the the way to approach it. So yeah, it was it was a bit of a strange one because you, you can't start a bike bike ride in the first few days thinking I'm going to keep doing this for 180 days. It's just not possible. And did it all go to plan at the start? Um, at the start, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, um, you know. The, the kind of the send off, getting all the witness statements that we need to sign and things like that to begin with was brilliant. We rode out of Berlin on a on a beautifully quiet Sunday morning. Um, although having said that, the first night the campsite I'd booked, it turned out there was two towns with um, the same name within about fifty kilometres of each other. So we had a bit of a kerfuffle getting a new campsite, but that that was something I'd expected problems like this. So it wasn't the end of the world and we sorted that out fairly quickly. But yeah, every day there's a little challenge. There's always something. It's, you know, whether it's finding accommodation or where do we eat or what do we do about this bit of kit or we need to get hold of XYZ. So that very quickly became the kind of routine of the logistics. Um but yeah, I I felt kind of quite in control to begin with. Yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I just can't imagine it. It's the scale of the journey that blows my mind. Just this idea of we're just going to go and push the pedals around 
hour by hour and those first few days, just the, the challenge ahead? Or did it just feel like we're going now, I've planned this for ages and I'm pleased to be doing it? Yeah, I think I think that was me, but I think Stevie was was the other way. But I think one of the weird things was getting to a thousand miles because that's a big distance, and you know that's like Lands and John Groats distance. And we got there, and it's like, oh wow, we've done a thousand miles. You know, that's a hell of a long way. And then you think you've got to do that eighteen more times, and it's like you just can't comprehend what's going to go on in that time. And absolutely, the way to approach this was to break it down to its its segments and its sections, and even to break each day down to, right, we'll get to this town and then we'll stop for a break and then we'll get here and find somewhere to stay. Um, it was as simple as that. And it was basically, it is just being able to do that on repeat for 180 days. Um, if you start worrying about what's going to happen on day 179 on day one, you're never going to get anywhere. And in fact, had I known what was going to happen on day 179 on day one, I don't think I'd have started the whole blooming trip because within 24 hours of getting to Berlin, we'd got, you know, several catastrophes going off at once. So it was, um, it was very much, and, you know, it's, it's quite kind of a recognised technique as I'm sure you as many of your listeners will know, anybody doing a big expedition, a big challenge, you've got to break it down into much smaller chunks until those chunks are manageable. And some days that could be the next pedal stroke. It could be the next 10 miles. Pick something that's achievable, work towards that, and then repeat. And that's how you get places. Yeah, totally. So when did it start going wrong then? You said it went well at the start. <laughs> I th- well, I don't think you can say it went wrong because we did it. But there was a lot of challenges and you know, they kind of, what started off as what we thought was not a big disaster, but it's like, oh no, this is a a big problem. And then you look back on it at the end, you realise that was the least of our worries, you know, considering everything else that's gone. But um, I think probably the first kind of major hiccup was we had what we call puncture gates. So we ended up with seven punctures in 24 hours from a tiny, tiny little shard of metal in the tyre in Turkey. Um, and we were looking and looking for this thing in the time. It took us so long to find it and dig out this tiny little shard. But then we lost a bit of confidence in the inner tubes we got, so then we had to source more inner tubes, which, yeah, in uh, in areas we were, didn't speak a lot of English, proved its own challenges, managed to get some wonderful help from a bike shop and sorted that out. And then very quickly after that, we found the Azerbaijani land border was still closed, so then that was a, a bigger hiccup and we're like, whoa, okay, so now I need to do a whole reroute. So we ended up in Tbilisi. Um, I actually ended up buying a laptop from a pawn shop with the intention of selling it back to them in 48 hours to allow me to reroute thousands of miles of the trip, to, you know, to make up for not going through the stands. Um, we fixed that. We got to India. Then India was just immense. Um so first thing was trying to get used to the culture and all these people on the roads, tuk-tuks, mopeds, lorries, everything everywhere, everybody wanting a selfie every five minutes. And then just accustomed to that, the monsoon hits and the rain was like nothing we'd experienced. I got foot rot. We then got the inevitable sickness, kind of got over that, had to do more rerouting. We had um, a tyre blowout and then had to source a new tyre. And it just kind of kept going, you know, everything kept being a bit bit more of a challenge and yeah there was not kind of there's not one stretch of the trip I'd say where things were plain sailing and we were just kind of 
spinning along, you know, with our hair in the breeze, <laughs> feeling like, oh, this is great, isn't it? There, there was always something that was kind of always the next challenge that came along. But I, this is again, I mean, I deliberately haven't asked the question, but I'm going to do it now. So you did it in how many days? Well, it's, it was under 180. And so the record stands at 179 hours, uh, 179 days, rather, 12 hours and 25 minutes. So borders closed, laptops bought, rerouting done, foot rotten sickness. How many rest days did you take? Well, we had two days off. So we had two days off in Tbilisi rerouting, no, three days off in Tbilisi rerouting, um, which were kind of rest days, but kind of enforced. Two days off of sickness in India. I wouldn't really call them rest days, though. Um, that was fairly horrendous. Um, and then the, the the main kind of issue with the trip was we got um, a mo- motorcycle drove into us in Malaysia, um, and that was fairly horrendous. And we ended up having one day off the bike for that, but because um, we were fairly bashed and bruised, um, we had to slow down as well. So essentially we lost two days um, to that instant in Malaysia. By the time we got to the halfway point of the trip, we were six days down off our 180-day target. And yes, we'd have still got a record for coming in at you know 186 days, but because we're so adamant we we're going to do what we said we were going to do, we, um, we wanted to push for this 180 days. So we ended up doing what was essentially a negative split to make up the days again in the second half of the trip. So it was, yeah, it, it was absolutely epic. And if we hadn't set ourselves that 180-day target, there's no way we'd have done it. Um, it's quite an interesting um, psychological way to look at it because it's something that Mark Beaumont talks about as well. We didn't go out there to break a record. We didn't go out there to go faster than somebody else. We went out there to do our best performance. And given our experience and um, given what we we thought we could do on a tandem, that 180 days we thought would be our best performance. And I I think we've probably proved that now. But that I I do find that fascinating because that's often the case with self-imposed time stamps. If you'd said, hypothetically, 177 days, would you have done it in 177? It's interesting because... We certainly gave it everything we could to do the 180. Um, who knows if we'd said 177, but, you know, it was right up to the wire. Within, say, 24 hours of getting to the Brandenburg Gate, we'd had our rear wheel bearing seized and had to get those replaced. On day 177, for example, we'd we'd had to stop at 50 miles because Stevie got severe hypothermia. So right up to the back end of the trip, it was this continual push and race to make that 180 days. Maybe if we'd had the 177 in our mind from the get-go, we would have pushed harder early in the trip, but there was no day where it felt easy. There's no day we got in and thought, oh, do you know what? We could just crack on another 30 miles here. Every day was, was yeah, absolutely on the line. And we didn't take a day to rest ever. Even the flying days, I had always gone this this idyllic thing in my head that um when we got these long overhaul flights it's like oh be brilliant it'll be like a whole day off the bike and we'll just have to sit and watch movies on the plane for 12 hours it was awful because of all the stress of getting the bike it had to be boxed into two kind of separate cardboard boxes you then had to get that through customs and get it through the oversized baggage and make sure it's safe 
then get ourselves and our visas and whatever else we needed through. Um, so you're exhausted by the time you got to the plane. And then because your legs are used to pedaling for 10 to 12 hours a day, sitting down for that long, like Steve would come out with, with ankles like melons. It, it was, and you know, to the point where we were trying to get upgrades towards the back end of the trip because the, the physicality of sitting down in cramped seats for that long was just absolutely awful. So there was no respite. There was no let up. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> I think it's type two fun. <laughs> I think there were moments and there, there was some very beautiful and stunning places and you, you kind of grasp those and hang on to those because it gave you that inspiration to keep going. So in New Zealand and in the Rockies and Canada, they're just so beautiful and it's such a privilege to ride through those landscapes. But a lot of a lot of it wasn't particularly picturesque and wasn't enjoyable. So the prairies are just so flat and, and indistinct. You know, after about five days riding through the prairies, it's just, it's the same scenery over and over again. So it's, it's a strange thing to kind of say, did you enjoy it? It felt more like a job. So it felt like this is something you have to do. You know, you get up in the morning, you're in a set routine, eat breakfast, duh, 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 get on the bike, and then same thing in the evening, get in, you know, get clean, wash your clothes, eat, go to bed. And we did that day in, day out pretty much for 180 days. There was no weekends, there's no holidays. It felt like having a job. Um, and it felt like something you had to do. And yeah, you would get kind of rare moments, but on the whole, it was it was tough. But that's what we intended. And if we if we came away feeling like it was a holiday, I don't think we'd have done our attempt justice. Yeah, I think that's the difference between you and Al Humphreys, right? Like Al was looking for these like profound cultural experiences and oh, I'll hang out here for six days because these people are cool. You know, for you, it's just radically the other end of the spectrum. It's like, it's an endurance challenge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was it was a conscious choice that we made it that as well. And Al's um, Round the World Trip is, is amazing. And I've, I've read um, other books by people that have done similar as well. It's, and you get so much out of that, meeting these cultures and integrating and things like that. It's, it's what we missed. And we definitely did miss out a huge amount. And people go, oh, it's such a shame that you went around the world and you didn't get all those experiences. Well, in some ways it is, but then we wouldn't have the record. The whole trip was meant to be a record attempt. It wasn't meant to be a holiday. And it might be that we do go out and revisit these places and have those experiences. Um, it's it's an entirely different way of looking at it. And I don't think either of those are any less valid ways to see the world. Um, they are just different. And yeah, I'm, I'm very much in admiration of people like Al that have taken the time to go slower and and seen things properly, whereas we've just whizzed on through. You know, we, we've flew through New Zealand in eight and a half days we barely skimmed the surface and that was such a shame for such a wonderful country so that's one of the places we'd love to go back to and spend more time yeah I think that's it I mean I I totally get it I think like there's this you have a plan and an intention you know your intention is to do this thing and what I get this sense I get this sense from you that you didn't want a record so that you could hang a a, um uh not a trophy a certificate on your wall and have people clap at you whenever they came to your house, right? I can really see that you guys, as a pair, wanted to see what you could do. And that's a really, really good reason to go and do something. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think it is, how fast can you take a tandem bicycle around the world? I think that was part of the part of the challenge. And we kind of wanted to show people that. And 
it would be great. It would be amazing if somebody comes up to us and goes, do you know what? We're going to have a crack at your record. Um, uh, that would be brilliant and good luck to them. Um, but yeah, we, we didn't want to make it a soft record. We didn't want it to be a holiday record. We wanted it to be something that you have to fight tooth and nail for and give your very best for because that's what I think records should be. And yeah, you know, the Mark Bowman's and the Jenny Graham's, that's what they did you know, they absolutely took things to the limit. And that's what we wanted to do with this was to make it a kind of a true hard record and take it out of the holiday zone. Because that's, as I say, I think that's something different. And yeah, they've each got their pros and cons. Do you guys do the holiday stuff? Do you go and, you know, slowly cycle through the Atlas Mountains and, you know, have massages and see sights? Well, we do try to. <laughs> I've got... um I'm looking at doing some cycle touring in, or we're looking at doing some cycle touring in France um, next summer, which I'm hoping will be at a much slower pace. But I'm a bit infamous for planning holidays, which um, are not quite as relaxing as, as they first sounded. So, yeah, Lands and John Grapes, for example, was meant to be a holiday, um, but it turned out to be quite a challenge. But I'm trying to learn to slow down the pace a bit and to enjoy things a bit more. And yeah, we can, you know, we can certainly do a spa day and things like that. But it's the challenges that motivate us. It's the challenges that inspire us. And people go, oh, what are you going to do next? I mean, we're not going to go out and try and do that faster. We're never going to do anything like this again. But we're always going to have different challenges. There's always going to be something that we need to motivate us to kind of go, go to the next level, whether it's on a tandem bicycle or, or you know, any, any other mode of transport. I think, yeah, there's always got to be that, that hook to kind of keep us interested and inspired. Yeah. So if I can pry, and you can say I can't, this is a couple, a romantic couple on a bike, not a <clears throat> not an athletic duo, as it were, who are just friends for convenience of the ride. How was your relationship through this journey? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one because I think there's some benefits to that because you've already broken down a lot of the barriers already. So again, hopefully not being too graphic, but when Stevie got saddle sores, you know, um, it's, it's quite appropriate for me to be treating those. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no modesty there, let's no, no. put it that way. So, and, you know, living in each other's pockets, we're quite used to doing that. Um, so there was none of that kind of awkwardness. And we we know how we work inside and out. We, you know, we're a very close couple, obviously, to be able to spend that amount of time together anyway. Um, but it's interesting, particularly towards the back end of the trip, because we were both almost individually so focused on the goal. It wasn't one pushing for it and the other was following. It was this dual driving force of both of us trying to get towards the end. And Stevie's saddle sores were a major issue. They then kicked off a knee injury, which was pretty bad and things like that. So he was really suffering every day. He's got the harder job mentally, sat on the front of the bike, steering it, manoeuvring it. Um, and I'm not sat with my feet up on the back, as it were, but kind of my role was more the logistics and um, find, figuring out where we're going to stay. And so we had very distinct roles. And I think that's was absolutely key to our success. But what that meant was towards the back end of the trip, when we're both absolutely shattered, we'd both be set in our own individual roles. And by that point, we we're like clockwork. We barely needed to communicate to know what the other one was doing. And we'd just go. And therefore, there was almost less interaction. And because we we're both so tired, there was there was less kind of emotion. You know, we, we weren't being, we were looking after each other, but because we knew we needed to get to the end, not as kind of a, 
a, a romantic couple, as it were. Um, so it became kind of very kind of automated towards the end of the trip. And it was one of the things that kind of took a while to kind of relax and get that back when we got back again to just acting as a normal couple as opposed to two individual machines that are just focused on getting to the end point. It was, it was quite an interesting, quite an interesting experience, but yeah, quite trying as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, again, I deliberately don't want to obviously pry too much and don't need the detail necessarily, but did you row? Did you fall out? Um, we don't ever really row because I'm the expert sulker, so <laughs> Stevie just gets the, the silent treatment. But yeah, I mean, we certainly, you know, we, we were at our limits, so we'd both have days when we were grumpy, we'd both have days when we say things we, we probably shouldn't have, and but I think we always had a deeper understanding of the reasons under, underneath that because we were both you know suffering we're both exerting ourselves and we're both tired so I think we could kind of understand to some extent what the other one was going through so if crosswords were said or if I sat and sulked for 12 hours on the back of the bike I think you know it was we kind of understood there was a reason behind that um and it was very much you know we we knew we couldn't get to the end without the other ones so you you kind of had to just take it on the chin a bit and go well this is this is a hard thing we're doing you know it's you can't expect to it to be you know, wonderful blissful relationship all the way around but at no point do we ever a question the challenge or b question our relationship through the whole thing those were the givens and therefore i think everything else was kind of slipped by the wayside eventually I find it so fascinating as a concept, this idea of a couple going and doing, I get, I really get the um, going on a journey together to go and see the cultural stuff. But I just, I mean, it's, it's a testament to your relationship in a way, because like you said at the start, you know, whatever that bike was called, the divorcee or something, the divorcer, <laughs> you know, it is amazing that you can go and do that as a couple and not be at each other's throats. Um, and maybe it's because people in relationships become so close that it's easier to say things you know, rather than with a friend or with a colleague or whatever. Yeah, and I think because we are so close, I think we kind of intuitively knew where the the other was at. I think it it made it it a lot harder to have any misunderstandings. Um, So I think that helped. And I don't think we'd have ever been brave enough to go out and do this without having had our experience. So it's not just the cycling, the tandem cycling, but we kind of, we do so many challenges together. So we do a lot of kind of um, hiking long distance paths and things like that too. So we both knew of each other what to expect. We knew if we're in a tricky situation, how the other one will respond and that we can get ourselves out of that. So we kind of, I think we both knew if things became critical, we could rely on the other one. And because we'd already got that experience, I think that's part of what gave us the confidence to to go out and do this as, as, as a team essentially. And you know, Steve has often said it was a team of three. It was um, him, me and the bike. And yeah, that was the team that needed to get around the world. So, yeah. How did it feel to cross the line? <laughs> that was interesting because it was, it's, um, it's one of these events that, you know, if you've got, uh, I don't know, a big birthday, a graduation, something like that, you play it over your mind. And this was something I've been playing over in my mind. I don't think either of us didn't think about getting over the line for 180 days you know it's constantly on your mind even though you try not to think about it you try and focus on the day-to-day you've still got this kind of image and I'd got this image of us um coming through in like a blaze of glory you know in daylight and getting all these wonderful photos and friends and family and it being a big celebration 
as it was, it, it felt like a last gasp because um, we'd had the problems with the wheel bearing the night before. Um, we'd got up at four in the morning that morning to make ensure we got in on that day. Um, and it was bitterly cold, bitterly, bitterly cold. And it didn't feel like the last day of riding. So it felt like it's just going to go on forever. And it felt like it's just getting harder and harder, worse and worse. Um, and then by the time we finally came into Berlin, the traffic was building up. The weather had dropped even more. It had started to snow. We were riding into a headwind and a blizzard. And there's a long straight road that goes right down to the Brandenburg Gate. And it, it's, I think it was over 10 miles long, but it felt endless, absolutely endless. And it felt like I was going to be stuck on that road for a lifetime. So when we finally, I think we stopped a set of traffic lights, we both had our heads down against this blizzard. I looked up and I saw the Brandenburg Gate. I was like, oh my God, Steve, it's there. You couldn't quite believe it. But then the lights changed and we rolled through it. And within, you know, minutes, we've done it. And then we've got friends and family there, which was absolutely amazing. And you can't quite believe you're seeing these people for the first time in six months. But it is freezing. So they're freezing. We're rapidly becoming freezing. And it's like, right, get the evidence we need, get the photos, get sorted, everybody back to the hotel. So our, our triumphant ending kind of got blew out a bit. And it is, it is dark by that point as well. But I think even if we had kind of come in in a blaze of glory, I don't think we could have assimilated what we'd done at that point. It has taken a long, long time to get our heads around what happened, what we've done. Um, and I think it's only through kind of reliving it, writing the book and kind of talking to people about it basically a year on that we can really kind of go, wow, we did that. And that's that's amazing because at the time it was just incomprehensible. It was it was a very strange thing. And getting back to reality was was, yeah, a big challenge, big, big challenge. Yeah, what was the decompression chamber like then? I think, you know, I'm trying to ask people more about this, I think partly because I really struggle and I've got coping mechanisms now for coming home, but um, not because I don't want to be home, but because there's a decompression, it's a change, it's a mindset shift. How did you guys find it? How did you cope with it? Yeah, so I'm quite aware, and I know the, the term post-adventure blues is used sometimes. Um, I don't know if there's an official term for it or not, but I, I was quite aware of this through my research. So I kind of, I knew that, we were going to have this dip and it was a bit harder to explain that to Stevie and he'd had the tougher time of it towards the back end of the trip. So I'd kind of, I'd made sure that we had a lot of time when we got back that we didn't have too many pressures on ourselves, but I'd already got my kind of next ideas of challenges or things I wanted to do in mind. I knew that how I work, I'd need something to plan. I'd need something to work towards because if I didn't, I knew I was just going to lose the plot entirely. Um, Stevie, the, the, his saddle sores didn't heal up until like January, February time. So he wasn't even able to sit on a bike for months. So that made it really, really hard for him to have anything to focus on, anything to do. And we had a really, really tough time um, the front end of the year trying to kind of find our feet again. Um, and it was just getting used to the everyday. Riding the bike is so simple. It was challenging, but it was simple. All you had to do was find stuff to eat, somewhere safe to sleep, keep the bike moving, keep turning the pedals. Getting back to what we call reality, where suddenly you've got to put the bins out, you've got to go to the shops, you've got to pay council tax, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. It was, it was 
confusing and overwhelming. And it was, it was a very strange thing to try and readjust to that mindset. And everything seemed to take me like twice as long to kind of process and go, right, so we need to do this and that. And that, yeah, it was, it was a very strange thing to readjust to that. And I'd say that probably, I mean, Christmas last year, because in the run up to Christmas now, I've kind of got the Christmas decorations out now, but last year I just couldn't even face it. I could barely kind of rally myself for Christmas day. I was just like, I just can't get my head around all this stuff. Um, so it was a very strange space to be in and, yeah, it, it was months to really kind of find a feet again, I'd say. And I think it's something that it's really important to talk about because I think having an awareness of it is is really important. And I think it depends on your own personality and how your own brain works as to how best to complement that. But I think the key things for us were, A, having the time that we weren't pressured to do anything. Um, and for me personally, it was having something else to focus on very quickly that... Um, that made it easier. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if this is true of you, but that, you know, a journey like that, I mean, almost any expedition, life is so incredibly simple in so many ways, you know, dangerous, complex, etc., and others. But the reality is you've got what you've got, you have a goal and a plan, and it does not deviate. There's no surprise post from the tax man, as you say. There's no, you know, do I need green milk or blue milk? And how much milk do I need? Like, it just doesn't exist. You've got a shared single goal and coming back to reality from that is I do think it's overwhelming um, and difficult to process and it isn't something that gets talked about much yeah and I think it just it gives you having done something like that it gives you a different take on modern life and what's actually necessary and you know I'm not saying that we've gotten to some kind of crazy basic existence we you know we, we do choose what colour milk we have in the fridge nowadays. But I think it does make you realise kind of what's essential um, and what isn't. And I think that's kind of, even if you, if you buy into things that aren't essential, I think it's quite eye-opening to realise that. But it, it just shows how complicated modern life has, has got nowadays and and how, you know, we've gone down all these little routes of getting subscriptions for a TV and all these all these little bits and bobs that just weren't even applicable to us in the slightest. Um, so I think it's we're really lucky to have seen the other side of things and not take for granted, you know, how simply you can live, essentially. I think that's 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 really key and really important. Yeah, there's so much power in it. It's, it's one of the things I love the most about adventure in all its forms is it reminds you of what's possible when it comes to imagining a lifestyle. Not that mine is in any way simple. Um, so what I, I meant to ask you earlier, actually, what do you guys do for work, if I can ask, and how do you basically enable this lifestyle and these sorts of journeys? Um, so, um, before I left, I was a full-time veterinary surgeon. Um, and then I put that job on hold to do the trip as it turns out I didn't come back to it. Nowadays, I'm part out of hours veterinary surgeon at like weekends and nights and then part project manager in the day. So, it was interesting this trip actually gave me the confidence that I'd managed the biggest project I could imagine to go and try something completely different. So I've been doing that for a while now and I'm looking at mixing things up again even more next year. Um, Stevie was a, a train builder at the railway for a long time and then when we got married he um, he became house husband um, and then he's been house husband pretty much ever since to 
kind of account for the prep for this trip and everything like that. So we'll see what happens next year. Yeah, that's cool. I like that for all the obvious reasons in 2023. Yeah. Um, Ace, well, to sort of draw this to a close, I guess, because we're pretty much bang on time, um, I always ask the same two questions at the end of every conversation. If you have listened to any of these, you might have done some homework, but if not, they'll surprise you. (laughs) Um, The first is what scares you? Yeah, it is a good question, isn't it? I think cars scare me a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of crazy driving around the world. Um, I think not having the next challenge or not having something to work towards. I'm not very good at sitting still and, and not having something on the horizon. So yeah, not having something out there to plan towards. I think that's, that's something that that would terrify me. (laughs) And what brings you hope? I think it is that ability of how simple things can be. So yeah, you know, seeing the world at the speed of a bicycle and, and going back to, to those, those bait and you've always got that option. Um, you know, we could pack the bike up now and ride off into the sunset and we would most likely be fine. We could leave all the modern day accoutrements behind and be quite happy with our own existence. And I think that gives you a lot of hope and a lot of reassurance that, you know, how, how bad can it get and what, what's the worst that could happen? And I think that that gives me hope that no matter what happens, you've always got that option to ride off into the sunset. Ace, that's a nice, yeah, hopeful close. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. 